for technology. <laughs> I love it. Okay. We're so enmeshed with our technology, and, and it just is such an important part of who we are that um, we decided to have Debbie stay in New Philly. The weather south is, I guess, worse than it is here. And she's going to Skype. Big part of the lesson today. So this will be interesting. I know, but you got here when it was still raining. <laughs> um, so I'm going to open with a, a quick review of what we talked about last week. And then, oh, she wants to be part of this too? Just to hear. All right, well. Yeah. Hi. We were afraid for a minute like you weren't going to answer. <laughs> Are we good? Can you, can you hear me? You can't hear us? Hello? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Oh, okay. You can, can you hear Dave? Can, you can't hear me. Okay. Excuse me, folks. <laughs> Hi. Hi, where's your collar? Everybody else has a collar on. <laughs> I'd make the old joke about dogs and collars, but we'll not go there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, apparently you can't hear me unless I'm sitting here. Oh, okay then, sit there. But turn to the people. Are you doing your thing? You want to watch my bold spot? No. <laughs> I want to listen. All right, let me see what we can do here. All right. Can you hear me now? Oh, you know what we might be able to do? I'm just gonna lift this up here where the mic will be a little closer. All right, very good. Okay, last week, chapter four of Daniel. Um, and, the, and the verse that, you know, quickly we'll remember the story. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and Actually, it's not Nebuchadnezzar, is it? At this point, it's Baltashazzar, the guy with one too many syllables. Um, he has a, a dream. It's of a big tree that um, serves all of creation, shades it, uh, provides for fruit and, and um, everything. It, 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 it symbolizes the provision of God for all the world. Uh, better put, it serves as Belteshar's provision for all the world. Um, we may have just lost her. No, we got her. Okay, we're trying, Debbie. Um, he has the dream that the tree is going to be cut down. Um, the dream comes true when um, Belteshar takes credit for the prosperity of the nation. The minute he does that, he becomes humbled. He becomes what? Do we remember? I can hear. He becomes a... A beast. Like a beast. Yes. And then, yes. He becomes like an animal. Um, he is like that for seven times, seven years. And um, finally he gets it, put it that way. 
and he's returned to his position. The particular verse that I wanted to point out was verse uh, 27. Um, there towards the end where, where um, it is written, Therefore, O king, may my counsel be acceptable to you. Atone for your sins with righteousness and your iniquities with mercy to the oppressed so that your prosperity may be prolonged. And I wanted to, to raise up before you the fullness of what is being said there. Um, so atone for your sins with righteousness. Okay, and the simple definition I gave of sin last week was um, doing wrong things. Now that's, I, I realize that's incredibly simplified. Um, more likely it is breaking off our relationship with God. And most of us have a good understanding of that, theologically. We've gone back and forth with it. But the next phrase, um, and your iniquities with mercy to the oppressed. The word iniquities suggests not a break with God, but twisting what God gives us, provides for us, twisting the law, twisting um, truth, and the twisting is for our own welfare, for our own good, or so we think. So, and, and then I offered, along with Debbie, the, the practice um, of confession and relinquishment. Um, so Michael was panicking a little earlier because the practice he's going to talk about today is, is um, confession. As you remember, I wanted you to put it into the context of iniquity, the things we turn towards ourselves or, or twist so that they serve us rather than serving God. So I hope it was helpful. I hope it was useful. I um, hope you were able to take some time to do it, to think about it, to contemplate it. To be perfectly honest with you, the, the idea of iniquity, although I don't state it directly in those terms, comes into play in today's sermon. Um, the idea that we take God's word, God's law, God's grace, and we twist it uh, to serve ourselves. And I'm just going to give you all a clue right now. Gentlemen, you're not going to like it. Okay? You're not going to like it. Sermon title is hashtag me too. And you know where that comes from. Okay. Debbie. Okay. Okay. All right. So uh, thanks for indulging me, folks. Isn't it great that we can all be here together? <laughs> We're into chapter five. And with it, um, we come to the grandson. This is a family affair, and it's been handed down. Um, and so I want to take a little look at just the movement, uh, because it's, uh, it's quite a stunning movement that begins with a very anxious king wanting to bring on his um, royals in this very tenuous time. And so he brings in the holy vessels. Now remember that when Daniel and his friends and all of the young men of Israel, the brightest and best, were carried into um, exile, they also took all of the holy vessels from the temple. However, those vessels had not been used. They had been held in the treasury. Uh, 
Nebuchadnezzar had understood that um, there was a balancing act in terms of how you brought down a nation. Remember his training program. He wanted to convert them um, to the culture of Babylon. And to do so meant um, honoring what was and, and not being in your face in terms of their faith with the one God. But the grandson has no sense of this. So we begin with the profaning of the holy vessels, verses 5, 1 through 4. And then we get the writing on the wall. And we're going to talk um, uh, quite a bit about that. Followed by Daniel's interpretation. At this point, he's 80 years old. He's not even known to the grandson until the queen mother um, brings him in. And then there is reward and punishment. So this is some 30 years after the passage we looked at last week, after chapter 4. Um, Nebuchadnezzar has been dead for 23 years after a 43-year reign. His grandson is now ruling. And once again, pride is the root issue. And this pride is lived out through acts of arrogance, blasphemy, and idolatry. But unlike Nebuchadnezzar, there is absolutely no repentance in his son. And when confronted with his sin, um, he actually wants to buy Daniel off, as we'll see, with a purple robe and a gold chain. But what we know, and what Paul later um, emphasizes, is that the wages of sin is death. We actually have a date for when all of this happened. Um, this is a piece of history. It was October 12th, 530 B.C. And folks, it reflects to us the cycles that come for every country, for every reign, uh, for uh, every movement. It was a time of chaos, a time of betrayal and high anxiety, and a time of discontinuous change. Does it sound familiar? Um, Paul Kennedy at Yale was later to write a book called The Rise and Fall of Civilization, and he tracked these cycles, and this is where um, Babylon is in, and the kingdom's falling. And so it's in an attempt to gain support of his nobles that Balthasar hosts a party. To impress them, he's gathered the holy vessels to toast lifeless idols, and it's then that God's wrath is kindled and handwriting appears on the wall. So, Dan, can you get that microphone um, and get, let's go ahead and read uh, verses 1 through 4. Actually, let's go through 12. He's coming to get you, Jack. Oh boy. When Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold, silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. 
The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak, and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have been a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are we good? Thank you. Thank you, Jack. <laughs> Thank you, Jack. So the saga continues. What's interesting to me is that we have had the finger of God appear at other times. Um, so if you were to go back to Exodus 8.19, we would see Pharaoh's heart is hardened with the plague of the gnats. Um, in a more positive way, we could go to Psalm 8, uh, where God's fingers trace the bold designs of furthest space. But what I want us to really reflect on here um, is the ways in which um, the king actually cherishes his sin. Um, so go back to last week and your work with Dave and think about the choice between humility, being grounded, humbled before God, and humiliation. The king here appears unable uh, to actually even conceive of repentance. Instead, he's trying to buy first his own uh, magicians off uh, and then Daniel uh, with a purple robe and a gold chain. The thing that's interesting about the Aramaic um, in terms of the finger and the writing on the wall as Daniel's called in to solve this difficult problem, the Aramaic means literally to untangle or loosen a knot. So, you know, I want you to think about a time in your life where um, you found yourself just in a mess. 
because every single one of us have had seasons in our lives where we have unintentionally found ourselves in a mess. And and the tighter the knot gets, the harder it is to unloosen. Think about um, a thin gold chain, like many of the chains that we have with our crosses, and how hard it becomes to untangle those knots. That's where we are with Balthazar. And, um, and Daniel's interpretation of the law makes it clear that the king's days have been numbered, mene, weighed, tekel, and found wanting, perez. And it literally is that very night that the kingdom falls to Persia. It is really easy to project out on those whom this passage might apply to in this season. But what I want us to grapple with is our own moments of arrogance, our own moments of idolatry when something else has displaced uh, God. And I want us to think about, um, as Michael carries us later this morning into an invitation um, to reflect on confession, in what ways do we dishonor God through our actions and speech or our inaction? And how do we understand um, that we are the holy vessels? Paul, um, as you know, in 1 Corinthians, talks about the fact that we are to glorify God with our body. And ask the question of us, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And then in 2 Corinthians, he goes on in chapter 7 to talk about godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret. But worldly grief produces death. So we have this duality, if you will, of godly grief and worldly grief, and, and it's pretty clear as to where the king falls. So what I want you to do is take some table time and look at how Daniel is described in chapter 5, verses 10 through 17. For those of you who have your um, study sheets, it's there. And then I want you to look at verse 22 and reflect on the defining mistake. Um, I'm also giving you another passage in Isaiah to look at as it underscores the concepts that are found in Daniel 5. Take some table time. Um, and then, uh, actually, Dave and Michael, I'm handing it back to you because I couldn't hear a word Jack said. But before you go to table time, are there any questions? Okay, it's a stunning passage. Um, so I hope you take some time and you go deep. And I look uh, forward to being with you next week, even if it means spending the night at the DeVries home in order to get there. So thank you all. Yes, sir. I'm in my yoga pants. <laughs> huh?
I'm gone. Um, I will listen uh, to what Rich manages to record. Okay. See you next week, guys. Bye-bye. Okay. So we're looking here at Daniel 5, and I'll share. Could you turn me down just a, a hair? I'm starting to. There we go. Can you hear me now? Okay. So uh, I, would, I would ask that you have a little bit of patience and grace with uh, Dave and me here. As, as he so, so said, we are all cards on the table, right? This is the time to confess because we're going to talk about confession here in a few minutes. Uh, we're winging it a little bit. So Debbie. Uh, okay, fine. A lot. Right. We'll, we'll really lay it all on the table um, because Debbie said last night she wouldn't be here and we were... Uh, unprepared for today to lead in her stead. So uh, we are all on level playing field because we haven't studied this passage uh, any more than, uh, than we have this morning. Uh, so uh, what do we, um, these three questions uh, that we were just reflecting at, at our tables, uh, what did we come up with? What were some, uh, some things that we uh, lifted up together? So the first question there, how is Daniel described in uh, uh, chapter 5, verses 10 through 17. Can someone give us a, a little summary of how Daniel is described there? I guess I'm talking. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's up to me. Um, Daniel, is. we kind of talked about how he's described as being wise and, and coming in. And after the comparison of the previous scholars who couldn't read the text... Uh, this one is sent for who he helped out the king, he, the, your, your father, and he, can, he could do these things. Uh, he has that wisdom. But it's interesting because the language we talked about was that it's very much from a worldly perspective. It's like there's no distinction made between these wise guys and this guy that's coming in. It's, it's approached through the understanding. It, he, he can make rational sense of it. He's done it before. Let's go ahead with him. He's got, he's got a sense of wisdom about him. Not that it's godly wisdom necessarily right. but could be lowercase g godly he has a spirit almost as though he's he's of a god himself they were just worshiping the cups a minute ago so they could be worshiping him in this stead okay am i still on sounds like i there we go oh you you put me down a little okay great so daniel has this spirituality there's this lowercase g godly sense about him uh, but there's it's it's through human wisdom that he is being uh, brought into this conversation uh, he's a wise guy and we need him uh, we need him here to interpret so uh, anything else that we want to add to that anyone agree with him disagree with him was it a hand birdie just scratching oh okay Okay. We have a consensus of two. A consensus <laughs> of two in a room of 30 or 40. Okay. <laughs> if you're not with us, you're against us, as Ben says. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, let's go on then uh, if, there's, if there's no uh, dissension there or uh, uh, disagreement. Let's go on to the next question of uh, what was Belshazzar's defining mistake and particularly uh, uh, lifted up. Uh, 
Debbie's lifting up here, chapter 5, verse 22, which I'll read just so we're all on the same page. Uh, And you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. So what is what is the defining mistake? That um, how he should have been he wasn't living like he should have been living. So okay. then he goes on to describe, well, here's what happened to your father. You know, I told I gave him the good news and then he screwed up and did all these things and he ended up in eating like the animals and all that. So he basically tells him, You you goofed. Which we re- we reflected a little bit on, um, you know, second generation, and isn't that often? It's amazing sometimes. There we go. I think turn it back, turn it around, and hold it like like this. Whoa! It's amazing how uh, oftentimes we reflect on the fact that we've um, raised our children and always had them. You know, in church and blah, 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 you know, the scenario. And then sometimes they totally reject God anyway. Yeah. You, know, you do the best you can, and sometimes it just doesn't work. Oh, Ben added, uh, um, they pondered at their table saying, uh, did he know his father's story? Um, the text isn't very... Uh, clear about that, is it? Does it? Let's give a verse. Can we find it? To the four. Ah. But first... Yikes. Verse 22 says, you, but you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Well, is, is, and by that, you knew all this, that's referring to his father's story. Is that how we're understanding that? It's referring to the fact that you knew better. Yeah. You can maybe excuse someone who doesn't know better, but he knew. Yeah, and to, to to this table's point, this group's point, I have to wonder if that, uh, because it could be, that could be read a few different ways. It could be read, you knew your father's story, so why are you following in his path? Or uh, it could be uh, that the Most High God has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals. So wh- where is that, what is the, what did you know, right? Is, did you know everything? Did he know part of it? Did he know the whole? A uh, little unclear. Did you have something to add there? Yeah, the way I read it, Daniel had just gone over the whole story yeah. of what his father had done, and then he refers to, and you knew all of that. Okay. So it, to me, that means he knew what his father had gone through and why. Yeah. Well, we all have... Uh, if yeah. We all know that, uh, oh, I didn't catch it. What was that? Just keep going, okay. Um, Yeah, certainly, certainly. But before we even go there, I was going to say, we all have family skeletons in the closet, right? Things that happened when we all were teenagers or young adults that we may not tell the next generation that we did wrong. 
this is preparing us later for a confession, perhaps, right? Um, that uh, there are some stories that we don't tell, right? Uh, I just, uh, those in Stephen Ministry know, Rosie was there, right? Uh, just, we just learned about uh, suicide, grieving suicide. And uh, something in, in families where there's been a suicide, there's such shame and grief surrounding it that often maybe it's never told or it's told 10, 20, 30 years later that that person had died by suicide. Um, so maybe there was a shame, maybe there was grief. I don't know. What, what did he know of the story? How much is told? Uh, I know in my own story, I ask questions about things that happened 25 years ago and I hear about five different answers. So which one do you believe? Right? Did the mother want to clean the story up and say, oh yeah, he just, you know, he went far away for, he went on a retreat for seven years. <laughs> or, um, you know, wh what perspective is he getting? What piece of the story? And how does he internalize and interpret that for himself? Right? So lots of questions here. Uh, if there's nothing else for question two, shall one, we? One thing. Oh. I've got something. Go ahead, Dave. Um, <laughs> thinking about, um, again, later in, in the sermon, the, the idea that we can know something, but knowing something doesn't necessarily change our behavior. I, I can, I've been taught something my whole life, but there are other things that are, are pushing behavior in a, different, in a different way. He could have well known these stories about his father and about Daniel, but we're also hearing about all these nobles and lords that are around him, and they've, they've got another agenda too. Mm -hmm. So their agendas are pushing on his agenda. How we behave isn't always simply generated by what we know or what mm -hmm. we think. It's generated by a whole lot of different things that come into play in any given situation. So maybe that's, that's how I see it, and I'm sticking to it. And to, to piggyback on what you're saying, even when we see something in someone else, we may be blind to it in ourselves, right? Uh, these last few weeks, I've been reflecting a lot on how the, the, the systematic sins of the generations are passed down, whether we like it, whether we know it or not, right? That unless we choose, like in, uh, if you were in the hillbilly elegy conversation, right? Uh, unless you willingly choose a different path, you are going to continue down the one that your family has set you on. Um, and whether you know it or not, there is a certain trajectory. And um, yeah, so how, how, how do you get out of that? How do you break that? And yeah, he could have known it, but he may not have seen it in himself. Um, did you want to add something here? Grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. What do you, and what do you take away from that? Well, the Spirit speaks to his children directly. You can't pass it on. Oh. Hmm. I've never heard that. That's quite a, that's quite something, that's, a, that's something to chew on. Huh. I like that. I like that. Another, another question is where do you find God? And I contemplated that last week, and someone answered it quite amazingly. And they said it was at the edge of culture versus the spiritual realm. And we live so much in our culture, and we don't seek God on that edge between culture and the spiritual realm, which in a way speaks to the comment you just heard. We don't take ourselves out of that 
Great. Anyone else want to add something to that? Or shall we move on to the third question here? Uh, in reading uh, Isaiah, am I on still? Can you hear me? Okay, reading Isaiah uh, 63, 7 through 10. Uh, how, does this, how does this passage underscore the concepts found uh, there in Daniel 5.23, which we, um, we read 22 a moment ago, but at 23 said, You have exalted uh, yourself against the Lord of heaven. The vessels of his temple have been brought in before you. you, have your, you and you and your lords, your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose power is your very breath, and to whom belong all ways you have not honored. So for sake of time, we won't read the Isaiah passage, but those who have, what resonances, what parallels uh, do we see with what Isaiah is saying over in chapter 63? Don't all raise your hand at once. I glanced at it quickly, and, and what I took away from it was, you know, once they were faithful, then they weren't faithful, and God responded. Whether that, like I said, that was a very cursory reading. Um, but that could be placed right on this situation. Again, once they were faithful, now they're not faithful, there's consequence for faithlessness. I saw Edith first, I don't know. Well, we, we talked a little bit about what that faithfulness and faithlessness was about. And, and so looking at, at Nebuchadnezzar, that, that God um, you know, was with him and supported him until he outright opposed God's position and, and took for him all of the honor, attention, you know, responsibility for what was good. And, and that the fact that Belshazzar was king says that at some point God was with him as well. But according to the Isaiah passage, it's when he, he elevates himself to, to raise natural elements above God that he becomes God's enemy, as Isaiah says, you know, and grieves the Holy Spirit. So we spent a lot of time, not a lot of time, but some time talking about, like, what that means for us, you know, how we go along in that, those patterns. And it's, it's uh, kind of trying to take all that and, and pare it down. It sounds like uh, they're guilty of putting the created above the creator, right? Of having the priorities out of whack. Um, but I'll, I'll just, not even having to read the passage, simply, uh, at least in, in my, my Bible here, in chapter 63 of Isaiah, before it's seven, the, sub, the, the subtitle there says, God's mercy remembered. And I, I, when I read the Old Testament and I read the New Testament, right? Uh, we are a forgetful people, all of us. And that's why we need to confess, because we forget the sins of the Father. Yeah, that's one thing. But our own sins, we like to uh, forget, and we forget that God is 
uh, creator and to whom to the one to whom uh, we owe uh, uh, we owe everything, right? Uh, we've just got about one more minute, but we, before we need to switch gears, did you want to? I say one thing. Yeah. Um, getting back to one of Debbie's themes, being um, being part of culture but separate from culture, not allowing culture to form you. I just realized today as we were reading, why is it every time they need Daniel, they have to go looking for him? He's never there. He's never right at hand. He's, they have to go find him somewhere. Um, and does it speak to us about how we enter into culture and yet also separate ourselves from culture. With the old analogy, one, one foot in the kingdom, one foot in, in the culture. Um, where is Daniel when all this is happening? He's not, he's not stuck in, in the places everybody else is because he's, he's made his primary culture something quite different. He's made it Yahweh or God. And so when they have need of him, they have to go find him because he's not... He's not there playing the computer games and, and all the stuff that they're all doing. He's off in relationships other places. Um, we, we see that again, dream after dream. They have to go hunt for Daniel. He's just not present until he has to be. Again, limiting um, the power that the culture has to form him. He goes to another place to be formed. Okay, I got to go take care of communion, so. Great. The Lord be with you. And with your. <laughs> okay. Uh, oh, we got one more point here before we move on to confession. Yes, Fred. Yes, a paradigm. On. Yep, you're on. A paradigm that may want to consider. Thomas Mann and his work, the Torah, talks about blessing, curse, God's intervention that Israel was blessed, they broke the covenant, hence the curse, their downfall, and then God, whether it was Abraham, whether it was Moses, sent someone as an intervener to mm -hmm. correct them in their ways, the pro in other words, the prophets. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking that paradigm not only applies to the Torah, but also fits here rather well. Oh, absolutely. Right. It's, it's, that, it's that cyclical nature of human divine interactions, right? Uh, God, God chooses us. God calls us. We fail. We repent. And I'll give you that 20 later for that good segue into uh, confessions, <laughs> right? Uh, because we are in constant need of confession, Right, and this is our spiritual practice for the week. Something that we do every week in service, right? That's part of the Reformed tradition that we always have that uh, call to confession, communal confession, and that assurance of our forgiveness. But how often do we practice confession in our own life? Realizing, as, as Fred just pointed out, that we are in that constant cycle as we go through our life of of looking up towards God and then looking back at ourselves and sinning and uh, needing God, but sometimes not realizing it. 
and that's part of why we incorporate confession weekly in worship. But how much is, is confession part of our own uh, spiritual walks? Is this something that's common for us? Or is this something that, I do it once a week, I don't need to do it more than that. Uh, do we have any thoughts on that? Confession. Just something that the Catholics do when they go into the little booth or not a Presbyterian thing? I think the ritual we do, okay, Dan? I think we are all can humble ourselves to some degree. For example, we're here today to humble ourselves, and we will perhaps say that as we pray or assume a posture of humility when we pray. But to confess with our lips our errors is much more difficult. I think it's easier for us to act humble, at least put on that air, than it is to actually say it. Yeah. Because confession means that we're vulnerable, right? And I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't really like being vulnerable uh, with too many people. Uh, it's, uh, it's a little scary. You, you put yourself out there to be hurt if you're vulnerable. And confession means being vulnerable with God, putting it all out there. Uh, uh, Adele uh, Calhoun from her Spiritual Disciplines book just says, uh, I'll just read two quick sentences here from her, and she says, true repentance means that we open the bad in our lives to God, right? We open ourselves up. And she continues to say, we invite him to come right in, and this is the part I like the most, look at our sin with us. Of course, we know that God already knows our sins, but when we look at our sins, we can be filled with shame and grief. And, and, uh, but in, in confession, we say, you know what, God? We are broken, and we need you here. Can you come in and help me look at my life and, and look at all that I'm doing wrong, all of my sins, with me? It's not a solitary, you know, we're not, we're not going to flagellate ourselves and, and do penance. And this is not that the time for that. This is simply... God, come in, let's look at our, my life together, the ways that I have not honored you, the ways that maybe I should have honored you more, and let me confess these things to you. So here, if you have this, uh, this packet from Debbie, um, she is suggesting that in this coming week, we are more intentional about practicing confession in our own lives. So she has there uh, about halfway down she says, let's practice it, and she says, let's read Mark chapter 12, uh, 28 through 31, and ponder that fourfold emphasis to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And uh, over this next week, prepare a life review. Begin by praying for the Holy Spirit to help. It's that self-examination, but realizing that we're not alone in self-examination. God is there with us. And uh, let us then lift up and name those things that are weighing on our conscience. And upon completion, offer all these up to God. Um, that's a great way to do that. But if you forget this packet, if you don't have this packet, I offer you another tool, a quick, simple, little prayer over here on the whiteboard. Uh, one of the oldest prayers uh, that, that I know of 
that you can say and repeat and can kind of become a mantra for yourself in this week of confession. And that is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? So what I love about this is that it clearly states to whom we're praying, but who is the Lord Jesus Christ? He is the Son of God. Have mercy on who? Have mercy on me. And who am I? A sinner. Right? But there's also this, this relationship between me and the Lord. He is my Lord. Right? So in this tiny little prayer, you've got so much packed in there. It, it's setting right the relationship, our relationship with God, and saying, yes, I am a sinner. And you can, you can say this once and then maybe go into a confession of sin by sin, or you can just say this again and again. And, and realize that God is merciful. One of the, my favorite things, coming back to what Fred lifted up a moment ago, one of my favorite things about the Old Testament in reading the story of Israel uh, is that they are forgetful. But God is still merciful, right? Uh, one of my favorite authors, Miroslav Volf, he says that if God's justice is supposed to be like uh, you know that justice that you see in the court with the, the, the uh, blindfold on? God's justice is supposed to be blind. God's pretty bad at it. And I love that image because um, God isn't just doling out justice left and right without looking at the person. He has called the nation of Israel, and he loves his chosen people, Israel. And through Jesus Christ, he loves us. And through the Holy Spirit, he calls us to be in communion with, with uh, the triune God. And so, no matter what we have done, we lift it up to God, realizing that God is merciful because God is God. And God loves us. No matter what we've done, no matter who we are, no matter where we are, God is merciful. So before we close uh, this morning, realizing we go forth in the assurance of our pardon through God and Christ, uh, let us go out with this confession on our lips and this confession as our closing prayer. Let us just say it three times as a meditative gesture before we, before we depart and head off to worship. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Amen. Go in peace and the assurance that your sins are forgiven. Amen.